Right. Good afternoon. <laughs> and uh, and happy New Year. Uh, I think I'll we'll call to order the first uh, first meeting of the board of trustees for for 2017. I'm uh, Joe DeVries. I'm the uh, Vice Chair, Vice President, whatever they call me, uh, our President is out today, so I will preside as best I can. And uh, shall we call the roll? Yes. Um, Trustee DeVries? I'm here. Trust Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Banjuri? Banjuri, yes. Here. Trustee Charland? Here. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Luganiani? Luganiani. Jim, are you here? Jim's here. I can't hear Susanna. Oh. Jim's here. It's because it's not Susanna. It's not Susanna. <laughs> oh, well, um, that, that's why I can't hear Susanna. <laughs> Trustee Thompson? Here. Trustee Zorinthian? She's not here. She will be arriving late. Alrighty. We have a quorum. Thank you. And our first item is open session. Uh, uh, I do have one public comment. Uh, Joe Rose. Come on up. Thank you, Trustee DeVries. And uh, Happy New Year to all of you trustees. And uh, it is a new year, and hopefully we're looking for bigger and better things. So uh, uh, Joe Rose, president of NAMI Alameda County South, that's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And uh, since it is a new year, I just want to inform you of my goals for this next year. And they've kind of been my goals in the past. But uh, two things really is, one is to reduce the rate of rehospitalizations of psychiatric patients, number one. And secondly, reduce the rate of reincarceration of people with a mental illness. And in that capacity, I'm working at, on the uh, Criminal Justice Committee of the Mental Health Advisory Board. So, but I'm going to leave that to another audience. But for the uh, reduction of, re of uh, hospitalizations, I gave you a handout here. And the, on the uh, third page, actually, if you just turn one page back, uh, it's uh, on double-sided you'll see that there's a list of, <clears throat> of programs which were designed to reduce rehospitalizations. This was approved by the Board of Supervisors on February 25th, 2014. Okay, um, so it's been a number of years since those have been approved by the Board of Supervisors, but not all of them have been implemented yet. Uh, the one that I am working on is item number four, which is the implementation of the Mentors on Discharge program. And for some of you new people, uh, what we've been able to do in the past is to reduce rehospitalizations by over 70% with the mentoring program. And of those 30% that do get rehospitalized, we've been able to extend the amount of time between rehospitalizations from an average of two months to six months. And uh, the associated ROI on that is, is over 350%. So uh, one of the other programs, uh, some of these programs, even though they've been approved for over uh, three years now, haven't even been implemented or defined. In fact, item number five hasn't even been defined, and they're talking about. So I'm, I'm, one of my concerns is 
how do we get these things approved when they're not even defined well enough to, to implement them? But um, I, I'm working on that. And what I plan to do on the, the last page there, you also see all the way actually to the back of it, um, it talks about one of those programs called the IHOT program. And they just uh, brought this to the Board of Supervisors and it was approved just the other day. And uh, you'll see that items D and E there are their effort to measure the reduction in rehospitalizations as well as the program that I'm working with. And I talked, am I done? You can, you can wrap it up. Okay. I, I wouldn't cut you off. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So uh, what I did was I talked to Dr. Uh, Tribble, who is the uh, uh, director, interim director at uh, Behavioral Healthcare Services, and I said, what I'm going to do over this next year is to measure the effectiveness of each one of those programs. Which ones of those are most cost effective? And then we should be starting to look at where we're going to put our money in terms of which one of those are being most productive in the, in the community. So um, just to let you know that I'd like to come back and report to you on those 10 items as to, in more detail as to where they are, where they're going, at least from my perspective, since I'm really involved in one of them in, in quite a bit of detail. In fact, we just got a subcontractor contract with, with AHS to do that number four item. So thank you very much for that opportunity. Thank you. And Happy New Year again. And, and we know you won't be shy, so we, we'll, okay. we expect to see you soon. We appreciate your work. Thanks. All righty. And I think uh, that is the only public comment we have thus far. So we're on to board education. I think Dave? So I'm actually uh, just going to uh, give you a few quick comments before Dave gets started. Okay. Uh, so uh, good afternoon, trustees. Or close to evening. Uh, happy New Year. Great to see you all. Some of you have been exchanging messages already. Uh, apologies for that and give you much of a break. Uh, but just a few uh, quick updates and I'm going to turn it over to Dave because we have, I think, two important uh, education items we'd like to uh, impart on you tonight uh, relative to uh, two major efforts going on in the organization. But just to kind of uh, re recalibrate us from when we last left off, uh, to have two things I wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, today that I thought were somewhat timely. Uh, uh, the board approved goals uh, that you approve in the November meeting uh, for the system. Uh, we have two uh, updates or, or uh, edits to those that are based off of continuing work that we've done to build the dashboards to start to um, uh, track our performance on these that I want to bring to your attention. I don't think they thank you. Are, uh, um, controversial, but they are more of corrections to what we put down and actually raise the bar in both cases, and so I think you'll be okay, uh, but I'll share those with you. Um, not asking it as an action item, because I don't think it needs to be, but if, if it, uh, that turns out to be wrong, then we can bring it in the uh, business meeting and ask for the, a formal action then. And then just uh, ACP, uh, ACA uh, repeal efforts, which I'm sure you all are probably following better, better than I am. Um, so I'm still going through therapy right now. But um, uh, anyway, I just wanted to say just briefly, uh, you all may know that as of last night, the Senate passed a uh, uh, SB3, I think it is, a constitutional resolution that just kind of begins the, the path of uh, uh, movement towards the ACA re uh, repeal where the very, uh, uh, I think, uh, clear language um, uh, was that they were uh, instructing two different uh, committees in both uh, the Senate and the House to develop the, the language to basically dismantle uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act and, and asking that those 
that those, uh, um, those that language comes to uh, Congress uh, by January 27th. So uh, this, the House is supposed to vote on this similar resolution uh, uh, tomorrow. And so we'll see there's some consternation about whether or not it will actually pass because there are people who are concerned about this uh, on both sides of the, uh, the aisle. But uh, uh, suffice it to say, there's a lot of uh, action and uh, momentum around uh, moving forward, and particularly on the Republican side of, of, of Congress and moving forward with the ACA appeal. Uh, similarly, there are efforts uh, at all levels uh, to to uh, uh, protect uh, the gains that were made through uh, the ACA and those still yet to be fully realized. Uh, and that's happening on all all levels, as you might imagine. Um, uh, just a little bit um, on the on the federal level, there are organizations like the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, uh, our kind of peer organization, uh, the America's Essential Hospital, uh, are doing a lot of efforts to uh, uh, advocacy and lobbying efforts with uh, members of Congress to um, to try to go down a couple of different paths. One is to say, if, you know, we, we'd rather prefer you don't repeal the ACA. We think, you know, fixes are necessary. Everybody uh, agrees with that, but repealing it outright is, is not the best route to go. Um, but if you are insistent on going uh, on this route, that you should not do this without a replacement. The repeal and delay uh, uh, option is, is the least tenable, if you will, of, of any of these that you might pursue. Uh, and if you don't do that, that at the least you can concurrently um, uh, remove all of the cuts that were implemented within the ACA when, when they were uh, when it was put in place, the cuts that were supposed to be used to actually uh, pay for all of the uh, benefits that came with the ACA. The Urban Institute did some work around this, and uh, uh, the last thing I saw was that there was a projection, which is the most conservative if nothing else happened, so kind of consistent with a repeal and delay approach that um, the uninsured costs alone, uncompensated uh, costs uh, for health care alone are projected to uh, rise by about a trillion dollars from about $600 billion to about $1.7 trillion. Uh, all driven largely by uh, people losing Medicaid, by um, uh, the loss of subsidies for uh, the exchanges, and so people losing commercial insurance there, and the removal of the individual mandate where uh, uh, people will then, you know, maybe elect people, well people will elect actually not to, um, uh, to pursue care and, or pursue coverage. Uh, but still will uh, um, uh, aim to get care when they need it, and that could raise our costs. We're, as you know, uh, and if you didn't know, in a cold triage right now, uh, and have been all day. But anyway, that those are some of the um, uh, messages that um, um, groups that are working to protect uh, access to care are, are conveying to to Congress. Uh, locally, we are, are. There's a lot of efforts that are in the form of, you know, rallies, in the form of uh, 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 marches and protests that are happening, um, either with members of Congress or the medical community. Uh, we are keeping close contact with our partners and the alliance and with the uh, community healthcare network and the county to see what efforts are going on within the various sort of layers of. Uh, of uh, um, sort of organizational uh, entities that they work with that are counter or uh, counterparts to ours to make sure that we're in lockstep as much as possible on a local level. Uh, we are looking at, and I've instructed the team to work with me to look at what will be in a projected impact to HS in the form of you know coverage in the form of uh, the various reimbursement streams. Uh, we have heard, and we heard in the conference that many of us attended in December, that uh, the waiver, the 1115 waiver, which you, you may recall is outside of the Affordable Care Act, uh, that a lot of, there's not a lot of focus on waivers right now. And so 
there's a likelihood, at least at this current point, that the waivers will not be impacted uh, by this, which is uh, some form of relief for those of us in the state of California and other states that have waivers uh, already underway because that's a big part of the remaining supplemental funding. Uh, so um, we're continuing to follow this. Um, we're, as I said, working with our colleagues. Uh, in addition to looking at the potential impact for us, working with uh, Terry and team to uh, to look at potential avenues that we might engage you all or, or propose to you in ways in which you can use your stations as pillars of the community to uh, further some of the efforts and make sure that people understand the importance of uh, 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 protecting access for Medi-Cal and for other uninsured or low-income populations to health mm -hmm. insurance and by extension health care coverage. So uh, obviously you'll be doing a lot of that on your own, I, I would anticipate, but um, uh, we will work to bring some things to you that you might consider as well. So I just wanted to put that out to you, let you know what's going on since we last talked uh, in this space. And then uh, lastly, to the second item on the uh, performance dashboard. Um, so this is the dashboard that you approved uh, at the end of um, uh, November. Um, we had two areas where in our further work to uh, put together our, our uh, tracking dashboard, we caught um, um, clarifications that needed to be made. And so I'll bounce back and forth to kind of show you. One is uh, under sustainability. So where we had the EBITDA margin, which was our goal for the year, which is 5%, and we had three different levels. Uh, we wanted to threshold meet that 5%, uh, and then uh, we have targets above that for performance that's in excess of that. Um, we talked a little bit at the time about the way that we were adjusting the financial reporting with respect to GASB 68 uh, to remove or to relocate that expense uh, below the line so that it wasn't um, counted as a expense in real time, but, but recognized... Uh, in a different way. Uh, the impact of that is that uh, the EBITDA margin uh, uh, is, a, is impacted and, and so it should be adjusted upwards when those costs come out. So um, so you'll see a little change here. So uh, where the budget, uh, the approved budget and then the uh, dashboard had the threshold at 5%, uh, taking out the projected um, uh, GASB 68 expenses that we'll have actually raise the EBITDA uh, target from 5% to 5.8, and then the other two adjustments are just the increments above that. Uh, uh, that would that would reflect the fact that it's now not five and uh, it's higher. So, so those are the five percent uh, uh, or 0.5% uh, above at step two and step three. Uh, the second thing is uh, Prime. So this was, uh, I, we can't explain how we missed this one, except there are a lot of numbers that move around. Uh, the Prime projects that we do for the target, uh, for the program is actually 10 different projects. And so where we said accomplice nine of nine of the Prime uh, targets, uh, it should have been 10 of 10. So, um, so we caught that when we were clarifying this and apologies uh, we should have called that sooner but uh, we did not so so those are the two changes that we're making to update this to reflect uh, uh, the things that we've done uh, within our operations and within our financial reporting so um, again I, I brought this to you just to give you timely notification of what's going on um, uh, I suspect I could it would be up to you of whether these need to be approved but I didn't ask for them for action items tonight so if you want to do that and, and uh, uh, we need to do that. Uh, we could do that. We could bring it uh, in the business meeting to do so, or you can just acknowledge it. So. And that was all I had before we go into education. I'd be we, we actually saw the mistake. We were just waiting to see when you would catch yeah. it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we took bets among us. You did? <laughs> Don't let me know who King won. Kenny won. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Drinks on you. 
Okay, cool. All right. Uh, so uh, that that's all I had. And so, if, unless you had any questions or thoughts for me on that or anything else, I'd like to turn it over to our CIO to update you on uh, what's going on with, <coughs> with our IT right. strategic. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, trustees, for having me this evening and allowing me to share uh, roughly six months' worth of work that's been gone into the IT long-range plan and roughly condensed a five hours worth of presentations into what I hope is about 45 minutes. So I've taken a lot of slides out and condensed a lot of information uh, into the slide deck where you'll see some things I'll touch on very briefly. Uh, it, so this is the agenda we'll go through and I'll, and I'll talk about that. So uh, I'll start with the engagement approach, how we approach what we're trying to accomplish uh, through this process, talk about some things they did, the voice of the customer process, uh, the focus departmental review, I'll very briefly touch on that, although there's a lot of data in that process. I, I'm not going to go into a lot of details on what was recommended for the specific areas of storing clinicals and financials, uh, technology, interoperability, and IT governance, but, but just know that there's um, significant reports for each one of those areas that we've received that we're going through, and I'll show you how we're tracking that, that activity and what we're doing with it. And then talk about the portfolio management, which is really looking at all the applications we have and what we should do with those. And then talk and spend a little, a lot more time around the strategic plan and recommendations on short-term, intermediate, and long-term activities. So that's kind of the roadmap for where we're going with this. I do encourage you to ask questions anytime along the way that you want to. Um, although know that I've got, I think, 35 slides in this deck to go through. So uh, in 45 minutes. So I tried to balance uh, where we're trying to go. But I do encourage your questions if you have them. Um, so this is kind of the approach that that we agreed to Lighthouse to do. There was three phases in the project. Phase one is really looking at this voice of the customer and, and, and identifying an ideal future state for us. What is it that we're really trying to accomplish with an IT long-range plan? Uh, the second piece of that phase two was this focused departmental review and application portfolio review of where we're at with all of our applications. Phase three of this is really going into the RFP process and we segmented that to make sure that what we were doing, the, the outcomes of phase one and phase two resulted in something that would require us to move into phase three before we just said, yes, we're doing phase one, phase two, and phase three. And the point we're at today is we've completed phase one and phase two, and that's the report out that occurred on January 5th was the finishing of phase two or the report of phase two. And then today's kind of the culmination of those, those two activities. Uh, so around the voice of the customer, this, this is the process they used to do that. It was uh, uh, 73 different interviews that they, uh, they had with staff throughout the organization uh, that resulted in 427 verbatim comments that they, uh, they accumulated and brought together for us to review. We had a retreat that included the executive team, uh, the medical staff, uh, and representation kind of from all areas of the organization that, that boiled those down into what's called their ideal future state which ends up with these five attributes, two of them, around IT governance, uh, IT support, communication, collaboration, provider engagement and adoption, the, the patient experience, and systems integration, standardization, population health. So the words are important in each one of those ideal future states. While those five are the categories, uh, the words that were put into each one of those are important because it really is around uh, providers' experience in using the system and what's there in the IT and what affects how they care for the patients. And how do patients get engaged in that process too as we think about moving towards population management and really around how do we engage the patient in their care and work with that. So those two areas were important in the experience aspect and of those five areas. And so how this was used were these five areas then looked at as we went forward with our 
individual departmental reviews or the systems reviews that we did, and as we're building the longer range plan, how do we make sure we address these five areas as the ideal future state? Uh, so it's really a foundational element of bringing together the, the basis for what our plan will be. So another part of that process was to, to ask each of the individuals to, to rank uh, these, I think, 15 items in uh, an area of importance and their, their, the ability we have at meeting those needs. So you'll see the top five there were, and the, the height of the bar is based on the difference between mm. how important it was and how well we are performing that task. So it was a five-point scale. So if something at 3.25 then shows that you know, they ranked it at a five and we're performing around a two in that. So they said five, it's very important, and our ability to meet it is about a 2.5 or so. That, that is how, what comes up to those numbers. And you see the five, top five there, access to a single clinical record, really, the ability to care for our patient. Uh, in our EHR selection process, as we're doing, working through a, a needs assessment and identification, we're having each of the areas kind of talk about their current needs. And uh, Dr. Sharnoff, uh, shared her experience in the pediatric or the OB clinics and what she has to deal with working in her clinic, working in the hospital, and what she has to go through to access the information she needs uh, between a clinic that's using NextGen today, a clinic that's on paper, and then when the patient presents uh, in the hospital to be seen, uh, those clinic records aren't viewable when she's in the hospital. And so the difficulty just to do it that. Um, I'm going to mess up. Our, we have... We have an orthopedic surgeon who works at um, all of our facilities, and he discussed his, his journey to get access information when he's, he's a patient in the clinic here at Highland and then does the surgery over at Alameda Hospital. Um, he can see the PACS images because we've identified that, but it's a paper-based record in his Highland-based clinic. It's a paper-based record in the OR at Alameda Hospital, and then there's a piece of Meditech in between there and a piece of Soaring Financials in between there that just makes the data very difficult to get through. And so they've, they've shared their stories. And so this access to single clinical record is clearly the number one top gap that we have in our organization as identified through this voice of the customer process. Um, clearly the second one, ability to share clinical information, that's um, within and external to our system, right? When patients leave our system and go somewhere else, uh, difficult for us to get that information and send it electronically to all those people that have it because much of our data is on paper records. And on paper records, that means faxing at best and uh, no information at worst. Uh, so that's why that was identified as number two. Um, the next, uh, obviously they go down in, in uh, the gaps there, but clearly understanding overall health status kind of is the same as that access to single record sharing information. Ability to, for our patients to access for information. We have a very limited patient portal currently that really exists only at Highland Hospital and only contains their discharge information, uh, a kind of a summary of their visit from when they were at the hospital. So very limited. We're expanding it to include uh, laboratory, radiology, and uh, outpatient results. So we've just brought the next-gen clinics up. So the data now on the patient portal includes ambulatory visits uh, where patients can see kind of a summary of the care that happened during their ambulatory visits. Uh, soon to come up are labs, uh, laboratory results, and radiology results from their outpatient visits. But still, it's very limited. Uh, the survey was done in July of 2016, way before that information was available to our patients. And then availability of robust decision support, again, back in July of 2016, very early in our K2 development, which is our, our data warehouse where we're accumulating all of our data and so mm -hmm. still, uh, and we still have large needs in the area of robust decision support. So, so these were the top 15 identified gaps. And so this information combined with the 
with the, the voice of the customer was brought into the focus departmental reviews. And so these are the five areas that were looked at um, in this. So the process was uh, interviews were conducted, Lighthouse did their analysis and evaluation comparing to other organi like organizations and, and how they use systems and then produced these, the five reports that I shared here that are, that are quite large. Um, so these are the five areas that we looked at, soaring clinicals and soaring financials, primarily because we were trying to understand the gap between our current systems and that ideal future state. Uh, the assessment was, and what was included in the Lighthouse engagement was, could soaring clinicals and soaring financials be our enterprise-wide system? So we, could we take kind of a status quo approach, right, as we, as we evaluate the options? Could our status quo systems be developed, be expanded to meet those ideal future state needs? And that's really what was the question around soaring clinicals and financials and why the Meditech systems were not included in that assessment. Because the determination was that Meditech uh, will not meet our overall our overarching needs of, of <laughs> we are still in code triage. Dave, can you clear that uh, message there? Thanks. Uh, and so we're doing a separate assessment on the Meditech system to see how they might be improved. Because each of, this, of these uh, departmental reviews for both soaring, for the soaring clinicals and soaring financials brought forward a recommendations on short-term fixes to those systems and improvements that could be made. And we want to do the same with the Meditech systems, both at San Leandro and at Alameda. So why was this not included in the initial scope of practice right. I mean, scope of services? Because the initial scope was to look at could soaring clinicals and soaring financials become the enterprise-wide system to meet that need. And Meditech was deemed in, in July of 2016 not to have all of the tools necessary to be that enterprise-wide system. So we didn't do analysis today, how, how far is that from meeting our enterprise-wide need? So we wanted to focus our energies on, on specifically on soaring clinicals and soaring financials. And also looking at the technology to support that, the interoperability needs of all that, interoperability being defined as how data gets shared amongst and between systems and providers and, and throughout the, the healthcare system. And then looking at IT governance as one of the things that was identified in the, in the voice of the customer process. Uh, and so I shared that, you know, I've got the five reports in, in, with lots of detail. What we've done with that is, is created this, this series of spreadsheets that includes on kind of on the left as that without going into the detail, all of the items that were recommended from the reports, uh, tracking each one of those. Uh, the, the column there, the next column with text in it is really what's our response to that. So some of these we're going to say um, the item was identified and that's really going to be addressed in the long-term plan. That's not going to be addressed as intermediate. Some of them are very short-term fixes, uh, similar kind of to the Toyon report that we received, if you remember that one previously as we looked at our financials, recommendations on how the system could be improved, changes that could be made. So the Soaring Financials report we're moving forward with, um, combining that with our work towards uh, re-implementation of our physician revenue management system, soaring improvements and optimizations that were already being done has all been combined in that work. So Dave's team and my team are working together on, on building that soaring financial group. Similarly, with soaring clinicals, we're looking at those and evaluating them on which of those items should be moved forward now. Uh, and you'll see that in the sh as we get later on in the short term, intermediate and long term, which ones make sense to do and which ones don't make sense to do as we move forward. Uh, EHR governance is really looking at what's the governance we need to put in place for the EHR selection and implementation process. How do we govern that project? And then on interoperability and IT assessment is really what are those specific things we need to do to improve those components of it. So that's what's in all of those reports. I wasn't going to spend any more time on this one. But trust me, there are lots and lots of details under each one of those areas that we're addressing and, and tracking each one of the recommendations. Uh, 
Um, so this moves in, I did want to move into the IT governance piece of this as identified and, and share with the, the board that this is the way that um, we're being suggested to work, look at our governance. So we've, we have formed, uh, the majority of these committees are up and running. So our IT executive steering committee, that's the group that is running the IT long range plan and the governance group over that. Um, and then in each one of these, I've got the, uh, of these eight committees in their supplemental slides to the, to the package you have, I've kind of got the function and, and purpose of that committee. I wasn't going to do that as part of the presentation, but you have that in your packet to see. But what I did include is kind of the, the committee membership in each of those. So the steering committee has oversight of the entire process. Uh, the project management leadership really handles the prioritization and resource allocations and, and just the management of which projects we're going to do and how we're going to do them. And then security and compliance, dealing with obviously security and compliance, uh, physician advisory and clinical standards, really leading us towards what are the clinical standards that are going to be set, what is the clinical processes we're going to use to provide our care. And so that's really driving how are the systems going to be used to deliver the care we're delivering in that process. That's the purpose of those committees. Uh, revenue cycle standards is really setting that, uh, how are we using the revenue cycle, what are how are the systems going to be used? Similarly to the clinical systems or clinical advisory committees on what they do, Revenue Cycle sets those standards and processes for how we do the Revenue Cycle. And then the technology and infrastructure, uh, again, setting the standards for what's our, uh, our base um, PC platform going to be, or Windows 7 platform, what's our, we're going to be Windows-based, not Apple-based. Uh, so setting those types of standards, what's our core infrastructure going to be, uh, the core bits and bytes and bolts of how we make the systems work. Uh, the last two are those information and data governance, informatics and data for governance, really looks at how do we define our data in the system so that as we identify uh, birth dates, we identify that. If we have a homeless person, how are we identify a homeless person's address because address is a required field in the registration system. So, so today is, is one of the things we found through our uh, business intelligence work. Uh, we had a large population of patients coming to us from Young America, Minnesota. And you would think, why Young America, Minnesota? Their zip code is 55555, is Young huh. America, Minnesota. And that was being used by registration as the homeless zip code. So a person presented, and we would have all these patients that had Young America, Minnesota as a zip code for them. Because uh, we, we did a little uh, bubble graph on, on the whole United States where our patients were coming from. And here's Minnesota with this large bubble, which, which was one of those that doesn't make sense to us. Uh, we also found that there is, there is an, a city of Oakland in many states across the country, uh, as we have patients from every Oakland in the country. Uh, as you might guess, because Oakland gets picked, and now there's an Oakland, New York, and there's an Oakland, Florida, and there's... There's all sorts of Oaklands that we also found in our data. So it's getting at that. Uh, the informatics and data governance is really getting around setting those standards on how do we record data for things that, that might be um, unusual and also things that are normal, right? So part of our, our prime data is to, is to uh, collect SOGI data, so sexual orientation and gender identity. What are those data fields going to be? So we don't. So it's a pick list that will be worked from and not uh, just whatever it is that the that the registrar or clinician collecting data wants to enter into the system, there's specific data fields that get selected. And then how does that get reported? And data governance manages how data gets reported as well. What counts as an admission? What counts as an encounter? Those types of definitions. Uh, quality adoption was really a, a new idea to us that Lidos was brought in. This is really around once projects are implemented, did we accomplish the objectives that were expected in the project when it was proposed? Much like the board doing or the finance committee doing reviews of contracts. Um, a year after we do them to make sure we accomplish what we thought. This group is really getting at do the projects that we proposed achieve the outcomes that were defined uh, when the project was approved. 
Uh, and so and that's the, the governance structure that we've, that we've put in place uh, and that is being developed uh, in some areas as we move forward. Uh, questions about that section on governance? Please, no. Uh, just a, a point of clarification. What system are we on today? Like Windows, what, 2003? Yes, w Windows 7 is our standard PC platform. Okay. Um, when you say what system we're on, well, that's, that's, that's that piece. Yeah. Because as we get into the clinical systems, I'll share that in the portfolio. Different story, but yeah, it's, we're yeah. at that Win point. Windows 7 is our standard desktop. And uh, the second question, just a point of clarification, the really detailed comments on the example of the assessment findings, these are from the consultants after they've interviewed your team and everyone. Yeah. Thank you. And not just my team, the entire organization. Right. So in that, in those interviews, you saw the, the, yep. on the slide shows the numbers of people that were in each one of the interviews this around the those result. areas. So it's a combination of IT people and end user uh, leadership in those areas. Thank you. Can I ask one more question? Sure. So for interoperability, what, who are the kind of people that in your, you know, key stakeholder interviews, who gets, who gets? Yeah, so, so part of our interview yeah. process included the Alliance, uh, the county, and CHCN. So that's really talking about who are our, who are stakeholders outside of AHS mm -hmm. that need information from us and that we need information around that data sharing. So that's who is included CHCN. in those, in that interoperability discussions as well as our interface people and our mm -hmm. business an analytics that, that do share data with the outside. Okay. Thank you. I was just going to ask if you're going to do something about that zip code problem. I mean, I, that's an input issue, I imagine, in the emergency room or other clinics. Yeah, where at, at all locations. At, at all right. locations. So can we at least change it to an Oakland zip code or <laughs> well, California that, zip code? It makes it more difficult, right, because it, it's we meant to be an address of that. So, right. so the group is defining how do we identify homeless people in our system. But they know where they live. I mean, they're not really, they're, they're unsheltered or they're right. houseless. They, they, they have, have a, zip a home code. and they have an area. And, and yeah. you know, it, it, it wouldn't hurt to, you know, ask so, them across street. I mean, you can register to vote at a cross street. It would be helpful to have them. It would be extremely them helpful. And if they gave a cross street that you could enter into the computer, then it could probably spit out the zip code. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that would be informative as to where our homeless population is, is, yeah. is residing. Right. Yeah. So, so the group is addressing yeah. And I realize it's not your problem. That's an input issue. But yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, it, it is a data definition problem, which is what, what we do own in the data governance group. Good. All right. So now we'll move into the, the portfolio management. And, and here's the process they went through, right? So we, they kind of ask us, uh, give us a list of all of your applications. And we, we initially gave them a list of 105 different applications that were, were top of mind, easy to come to and send to them. When, when you ask about what platform are we on? Um, those were the first 105 that came to mind. As we continued to work through that, we found another 30 uh, into that. And then as we started looking at, from a finance review standpoint, all the, all the things we're paying maintenance on, we identified another 33 applications. So 33 applications that, that IT pays for that generally IT doesn't know about. Uh, <laughs> as you think about what do we do from a support standpoint, you know, what are the systems we touch on a daily basis, uh, those 33 are things that we generally don't touch, but yet we pay to support them. Uh, think of things like up-to-date, right? So it's a database that the physicians use and clinicians use to get information about um, protocols, procedures, and medications. Uh, it, it's a web-based application. We essentially just pay the license fee for it, and that, that information is accessed. The question I have is the 105 applications under product. This means how to use a specific uh, tool that we use in the assessment of an individual. What does that mean? Yeah, I'll... We'll get in a little okay. bit more in Sorry, the next couple of slides okay. on, on what the what types of things make up those. 
Uh, and so that all of 168 applications were analyzed looking at what we spend on those, uh, asking our users are they satisfied, not satisfied, and, and where is that kind of product in its life cycle, uh, which gets us to... Dave, sure. are all of those applications supported by the internal IT or do any of them, um, do we contract for any... Uh, there, there's a little bit of both in that answer, yes. So, so this is a list of, of what makes up that 168 applications by category. Uh, and so you'll see there's a lot of different things on there. Um, the, 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 uh, many of them, a, a large percentage of them are also things that are kind of in our, in our infra infrastructure technology side of that, that, that's runs the app, that runs the systems that we have. So it's not just an application that might be like, uh, the, like the surgery system or the radiology system. It also includes our paging system and includes the software we use to manage the network as an applications that we manage. So that's what makes up the whole 168 of those. Uh, well, what, what Lidos said is this probably represents about 80% of all the applications identified through our system because there will be stuff that IT doesn't pay for that gets used throughout the system that we don't know about. So for us, at 168, that's probably another 40 or 50 applications that we don't know about that are likely small in nature and likely not mission critical to the operation of the organization, but they're out there and we're, we're, we're using them. So it may be something that uh, someone bought uh, through their department that could be shrink-wrapped right off, they bought it off the shelf, uh, got reimbursed for it through our reimbursement program, loaded on their PC and they're running it and we don't know anything about it. But it's unlikely that is mission critical to the operation of the organization because we try to keep track of those things where, where data becomes critical uh, and have them in our in our system backed up by our so servers and our software keeping track of them. Um, so, so this is one of the, of the things that Lidos brought to light on this, that in imaging and cardiology we have seven different applications supporting those areas. Uh, they said, that's a lot. We just don't see that other places that you have seven applications supporting uh, the imaging department. Uh, and so that, that, that's an, it's a piece of what comes into um, and I'll touch on it slightly later, our expense, what we're paying for because we have so many different applications doing the same things. Uh, driven somewhat by the acquisition of San Leon and Alameda, when we brought those on, right, there were existing applications there and we just kept them. Uh, PAX will be the example we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and so that's what the reflection of this. There's a lot of redundancy in the systems we have doing the same thing, but different systems at different places, which require different support people. Right? So, I, so with Meditech at San Leandro, I have a person that supports that. Uh, of Meditech at Alameda, which is a different system. We have a different person supporting that. And then we have Sorian or the, or the Siemens Cerner products here at Highland, and we have different people supporting that. Mm -hmm. So it just increases the number of uh, people needed to support those systems and the numbers of systems that need to be supported and paid for. Because each of those have their own maintenance fees associated with them. But it, but it's, uh, you said seven's a lot, but pharmacy at eight is... Yeah, I didn't specify because pharmacy typically has a couple different things they're doing. So there's outpatient pharmacy, there's inpatient pharmacy, there's the, the um, pill consolidation item, there's inventory tracking system. So pharmacy, it's not unusual to have okay. a larger number there. But imaging in cardiology is unusual to have that many in there. That's why I picked the seven instead of the eight. I wondered if you would ask about that. <laughs> if I had a prize, I would give it to you. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, so this... This piece of uh, portfolio metric is really looking at the, the, uh, where the application is and kind of giving them a score. Uh, and so the first part there, the phase, really looks at is it, is it in planning? It hasn't been implemented yet, but we're planning to implement a, a, an application. Uh, it's in the deploy, so we're currently active in putting that, 
system in place, and then manage means the system's up and running and we're just running it. N not unusual to see that it's 92% in the managed category because that's the majority of our applications are up and running and we're not installing new stuff, uh, which is good if we were installing lots of new stuff all the time, that'd be too much change and too much um, going on. So that that's a good thing. Uh, satisfaction, on the other hand, um, I don't know about you, but if I brought home my report card, I don't think my parents would be excited if I said, hey, mom, dad, 89% of my grades were uh, C or better. Mm -hmm. Uh, with 37% of those being in the acceptable category, right? Acceptable isn't great. That means we can use it and it does what we need it to, um, but it's not in the good or excellent category. So so while we're, um, they talked about 89% being acceptable or greater, uh, that's not necessarily a good thing when it's, when it's just acceptable. Dave? Um, one of the things we do is make sure people get notified when, when codes are in effect, and so that's the process we use that, that pops up on every PC in the network. Um, that notification goes out, including Alameda, San Leandro, and everything at Fairmont. That notification goes out to everybody, so everyone sees. Uh, that's a way we can get to a, everyone at the same time very quickly with important messages. What was that code, by the way? Uh, <laughs> it's our probably like, why were you making sure everybody... Like, should we be preparing ourselves for whatever yeah. it was? No, uh, the code tree is in effect because of uh, census impact that we're having. So our, our ED is impacted because of bed availability throughout the system, and so that we activated our internal it's code. Okay, yeah. We've had a huge surge. We had 30 patients boarding in the ED this morning, and we've been working all day to cycle through them. Is it weather-related? I think it's probably seasonal weather. I know that has nothing to do with IT, but I had to ask. The notification does. It does, because then it's notification of how do we share the data, how do we move patients around, where's the bed availability happening. So there's a lot of IT behind it. It is the engine. Um, so then the other two categories we looked at were life cycle and priority. So things are, uh, they identified applications either being in invest, which means we should be, we should be, putting more money in this one and, and doing more with it, or it may be those that are in the uh, plan and deploy phase, right? We're just starting with those. Uh, the grow means this is something that we think is effective and we should be using more, or we need more of this using in the organization. Uh, harvest means it's one of those, we just need to continue using this and get the benefit out of the system and continue using it. Uh, sunset means that application is probably uh, at its end of life and needs to be replaced. Now, it's not... Uh, it's not simple enough to say that a system is excellent and so we should invest in it or that a system is deficient and we should sunset it. There are cases where we've got some defic systems deficient but we should grow it because we need that functionality even though that one may not be the best one. It is one that we have right now and we should grow that to get more value out of it. Uh, and that is the case with some of these. So there are some that are uh, acceptable that are that are sunset. There's some that are in each of those categories. They cross across those, and so that's what kind of gets up to their score. Uh, and so that gets us to kind of this this slide showing the lowest performing products across all of our 168 applications we looked at. And so while I'm not going to go through all of these, you will notice that each of the applications has a deficiency identified and a migration application or a way to get out of this of, of this problem. And so we went through all of those. This is the the slide of lowest performing, the next slides will look at the sunsets. I, I highlighted here two of them, the Tanberg video phones, uh, something you shared at Finance Committee last night on, on our replacement of our, our uh, video interpreter services. So I think that's a, a key message on how we work with those uh, non-English speaking patients and how we support them better. Uh, we're investing in the technology to make that system work better and more effectively for them. 
And then single plasma is one of those uh, imaging applications that is, that is different across our three acute care facilities where we have that. Uh, the next slide is looking at the list of sunset products. And so here's one you'll see some, some overlap and some consistency. The, the one I highlighted there with the stars, the Tanberg video phones, again, they were, they were ranked as a low scoring item because they were at end of life. They're showing here as sunset product because they're at end of life. Uh, the, the systems are not wireless. They require to be plugged into the wall and to have their, their wire plugged in for data connection because they're not wireless. And so those devices were, were in this case of not being as supportive for us as we needed. So the mitigation there is to um, what we now purchased are a, 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 a essentially a PC on a stick is what we like to call it. It's a Microsoft Surface on a, on a smaller pole with a smaller footprint than the previous uh, video interpreter services carts had. And so it's taking up less room in the exam room, uh, easier to move around. It works wirelessly and off battery, so it can be used anywhere and, and moved anywhere in the exam room where it's um, used. Dr. Zorthian was one of our pilot users with this to, to, as a proof of concept for these devices. Yeah, um, they're very nice, but sometimes hard to find. Yeah, because they're mobile, uh, they're mobile. You know, there's an app for that. <laughs> and so that's that one. Uh, another one here on our sunset applications in the imaging area is the radiology packs. And so this is one that was identified as uh, as one that we need to look at uh, a PACS consolidation process, and it shows up in a in a in the next recommendation. Well, certainly other things are here in the sunset list, and each one of them has an issue and mitigation plan of how we're going to address each of those items. Uh, and so this is that recommendation on imaging. So you'll see we have three different uh, PAC solutions, view, centricity PACs, and single plaza. Uh, each of those... Did you, did you say what PACs is? Oh, sorry, I did not. PACs is picture archiving and communication systems. So it is uh, digital imaging. You can think of it that. So every time you go to, the, uh, to, your, to get an x-ray, now you, you don't see a piece of film that they're stick up on the light board anymore. They're pulled up on a computer. You can see it. And it's, it's how we store those images. Uh, it's in a PACS archive. They're, they're uh, larger in nature in, in file size than other images. Uh, they're stored under a specific what's called DICOM image format. Uh, and so they just have special storage needs. And, and PACS, or Picture Archiving Communication System, is the way that digital images are, are moved around and stored and, and used. Oh, thanks, Dovecchio. I appreciate that. And, and this is for system-wide? This is system-wide, right. So, so Alameda has a separate system than San Leandro, which has a separate system from Highland. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what we've done today is make those systems accessible through, through a PC. They can, providers can get to each one of those three different applications to mm -hmm. see images. But again, that's problematic because you can't see two images at the same time. Right. Uh, an image that was done at Alameda and an image done at San Leandro mm -hmm. can't be pulled up together. You have to look at one independently. And so the idea here is consolidate that to a single platform, uh, which may or may not save money. We haven't dug into the detail yet to determine whether there's a cost savings to do with this, although we believe there may be. Uh, but certainly from a clinician standpoint on accessing information about our patients, uh, especially if they present to the emergency room, uh, we can see those images from previous visits either at our clinics or, or at our acute care facilities. So it's a it's a... It's a win-win-win for the providers when trying to address images across the system. So we would go to one of those three? Uh, not necessarily. As we reviewed this, uh, there's, a, there's a group called CLASS, which is a, a database that uh, ranks and reviews of end-user review of satisfaction with systems and uh, of cost of access of how well the, the, the vendor supports their product, 
uh, and how the process works. And, and those three are low, very low-ranking products in the industry. Uh, the three top-ranking ones uh, work very differently than those. And so that's our, that's our review to say, should we, should we go with one of the existing three that we have? Is it, is it good enough and adequate enough to meet our needs? Or, or should we move to a, a different product which provides um, a different way of doing, the, of doing services which might be better for us? This one in particular is one of those that works for us in a long-term strategy because neither, uh, none of the um, EHR vendors includes a PAC system as part of their core offerings. It's always a separate system that runs that runs the PACS archive. And, and what's called a vendor-neutral archive really meant to be that regardless of who your vendors are, uh, that archive will support all of those vendors, whether it's the... the the imaging systems that acquire the images or those that are trying to consume them, mm -hmm. like an Epic or a Cerner, mm -hmm. uh, they can consume those from the PACS, the Vendor Neutral Archive, and, and share them. So that's why we think this is a, is a good recommendation moving forward to do consolidation of that. It does reduce the amount of support we would need for that because now we just have one application to support instead of three. And so we think there's uh, some work in that. You will read in here, though, Lighthouse is saying, um, while... Uh, Oh, organizations of similar size typically have twice the number of resources allocated to these applications as we're allocating to them, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute about IT resource allocation of personnel that we have. Um, so there's there's some trade-off here in how we might be able to take those resources supporting multiple systems to support the single system and, and do better in that. Um, so this is one of those that is a that is a consolidation type of idea of how do we take the, the spirit system and consolidate them. Um, in a, in a more accelerated time frame than waiting for the big EHR replacement project to do that. But license saving? Would there be savings on the licenses? Uh, there could be. It depends on uh, somewhat on how much each one of those costs. And so the, some of them are, are fairly inexpensive. Some of them are very expensive. In, in total, it's, been, it's about 750000 per year on the three different systems. Um, and so it, a, a, lot, a lot of licensing is done by volume. So it depends on how many images you're shooting each year, how many but images right now you're, you're capturing. Trying to provide access at each one of these points right. to three different systems. So right. aren't you, in essence, paying almost three licenses if you're paying it by seed or how are you? How is yeah, it, okay. most of them it's a web view, so there's not a license for the web view of that. It's not. It's not a radiologist view of the system. It's a. It's a web view, so any provider can see those images, and licensing is different for that view of it. Okay. So, so uh, to answer your question, seed. yes, yeah, it's not a per seat price on all of them, but it is, yeah. uh, we are paying licensing on all three of them. Right. And so we, there is consolidation and, and we believe some savings that can occur. Uh, so here we get into the, the what Lidos looked at in terms of our uh, IT expense and, and personnel costs. And so this is a summary of our last um, three years of actual expenses and then 2017 budgeted uh, when they were doing their review. So you can see we were at uh, 5.2% in 2014, 4.6% in 15, and then 39 in 16 and 17 uh, as we project this. Uh, that's really looking at what is the percent of the total organizational spend on IT. And you'll notice the IT spend didn't change a whole lot there, 36 million, 38 million, 34 million, 35 million, uh, but the organizational's operating expense increased dramatically, 700,000, or 700 million, 800 million, uh, 840, 878, and 900. So that, so that IT has not grown at the same speed at which the organization has grown in total overall expenses. Not a bad thing, right? Because we're looking at should, where should that number be in, in the 4 to 5% range. Uh, the problem is uh, in the next slide. And, and so you'll see this is, we're, 
with this number we're looking, we're not in a bad place. We're, we're not the best performing organization across the country, but we're not the worst either. Uh, in this slide, I know it's hard to see up on the screen and, and a bit hard on the slide you've got because it's small. Uh, Lighthouse did kind of a benchmarking here across organizations of like, uh, like size and similar uh, type of system. Uh, so this is looking at hospitals from, I believe it's 600 million to uh, one, uh, over 600 million uh, in their database. Uh, this is from the HIMSS analytics database. All clear. Code triage internal is all clear. This is the all clear for code triage internal. That's good. Um, so, so at this, uh, this database is, is self-reported by organizations like me, so the data in there is the, the data I submitted in 2015, uh, showing 3.9% of our total uh, operational expenses in organization was spent on, on IT services. So it includes my total operating expense, everything I paid for hardware, software, employees, license fees, maintenance fees, everything in there. And we're at 3.9% or about $38 million, I believe. Uh, in, in the next column there shows the number of total ISFTEs in the organization. And the reason ours has a hyphen into it is because Lighthouse wasn't sure whether these numbers included HIM or not. Uh, within AHS, HIM, the, the medical records department, reports to me. Mm -hmm. So that's what adds up to the 156 number there. Uh, in core IT, we have 94.6 FTEs. And so Lighthouse's review here was saying of people that have systems and, and IT, how much are they spending on IT and how much, how many FTEs do they have to support that? Because they're, they're, when they looked at our numbers, they thought our FTE number was low, and this would indicate that, showing they think, uh, in their review, uh, that we should have between 22 and 84 more FTEs based on the average across all these other organizations. But was our FTE number low because our contracted positions for, or this includes the contracted positions? There's a, there's a portion of that that is true, yes, because we do have, we still have some consultants on there, and so this is FTEs, not consultants, as it looks at that number. So we have a high number of consultants. Uh, we, yes, we do. We have some. We have what really is At found that in this. In 2015 yeah. when you gave this data. Yeah. Uh, what we also have in it is very high operating expense for our systems. Okay. So because we have multiple systems, we're paying more money for them. Uh, because you, could, you would assume that at 3.9%, if we were the same as everyone else, or others that are 3 or 4% and have, you know, someone there is at uh, 218 employees at 3.5% um, mm. of, of total operating expense. So they're, they're spending less on their applications than we are. So we're spending more for applications and support those applications and not as much on employees. And so it's a, it's a delicate dance with these numbers to see where those fall. Uh, and, and they're all over the board. So, you, so the, the story in the street would be that Meditech is very cheap to run. So you see one person there with Meditech that has uh, a very low number of employees, uh, 116, I think, for one, which makes them low compared to others. And then somebody has 301 employees in IT uh, that's only supporting $720 million worth. That's also a Meditech site. So it's, it's clearly not, it, it's not a direct line showing how much uh, total revenue or total expense you have and how many IT people you have. It, it really varies on how much you insource and outsource and how you do that. But total expense, uh, it should be a good number to record where you're performing within that. And it's not a linear relationship either between how much you spend in IT and how much revenue you make or what your total operating expenses are. Uh, it varies a lot as well between you know a 2% and a 5% or a 6% number. So I share the number uh, as a um, 
a temperature, right? It's, it's, it's a data point to look at to say we need to evaluate this to see what we need to do differently. It, it's not a directive. You want to make sure people are informed of what's going on. <laughs> Continue to send those out. So these are the observations that um, that Lighthouse made on this. I mentioned already that AHS spends more than other organizations. Uh, spending is more because they think of these multiple systems that we have to do that. Uh, FTA, FTE costs are lower than or other organizations because we have fewer people. Uh, and those numbers are lower than, than they would anticipate given the number of applications we have. I think this is indicative a bit of the uh, satisfaction with our systems and how much we're able to do because we have uh, constrained resources, but in terms of how much we're spending on IT, we're about right. So we can't afford more staff because we're spending more on the applications, if that makes sense. Right. And so we think if we can reduce our numbers of applications, we can increase our staff and, and hopefully keep the cost the same or increase them a bit. But that would be the indications of their findings there. Um, they're still saying here in 2015 consulting costs were contributing. We were in 2015 in that transition of consultants to employees, and so our number was still a bit high then. Um, Can you still quantify that a little more? Like where, where we were versus where we are as a percentage of total IT yeah. uh, FGEs that were, that were uh, outside consultants then versus now? I yeah, mean, you'll, you'll see on this slide oh. we still have the budget for 2017 showing we had $3 million um, budgeted for still, still using consultants in that. Wait, where? That's not that. here, right? Yeah, oh, that's back yeah, a couple slides. So slide 21. Consultant oh. operating standards. And you compare oh. that to 14 and 15 levels. Yeah, you'll see that in, in 14 and 15, oh, that, that's when we had our big numbers and we're doing that conversion. Uh, and you'll see, similarly, the local operating staff and benefits, that number goes up because we were moving down. If you add those all together, we're spending less money today than we spent in 2014 and 2015. Less, less than half where we were in 2014, I see. That's yeah, great. Uh, of total. Thank you. I, total I didn't see that earlier. I didn't, I didn't think to look for it earlier. <laughs> All right, so this gets us to the kind of the, the recommendations and, and really the, the IT long-range plan that we are talking about. Um, we had done, Lido's put these together in three different sections, kind of in a short-term, intermediate, and long-term, really short-term being that six to 12 months, intermediate being one to three years, and then long-term being that 10 years plus uh, activity we're going towards. Uh, and so in the short-term, we really looked at what, what's the long-hanging fruit, things that can be done that require low to moderate, uh, amount of resources to do it, uh, not distract us from our longer term needs, and then uh, that, that can run in parallel with that and, and support where we're trying to go. Uh, so here's what they, here's what they have identified. Uh, they said we should implement those things that are in the Saurian financial assessment, which, which we're doing. Uh, and so that one's one we agreed to and we're moving forward with that. Uh, evaluate the cost benefit of the Saurian clinical assessment, because a bit of that is there's pieces in there that would be addressed and, and solved by the uh, a, a new EHR vendor, a different system that would solve that, or we can work to improve some of these things, but a real cost benefit needs to be done on which of those provide us, will provide us benefit today in the short room and not deter us from what we're trying to do on a longer term basis. So a lot of evaluation is still happening in that one. Uh, they agree with us that we should roll out the next gen to, they're saying six specialty care practices, specifically that will benefit from Prime or in support of Prime. And so we've identified those and are, and are adjusting our prioritization of the next-gen rollout to where we're at with, with those specialty clinics in support of Prime and, and supporting them with Prime. What is the next-gen of patient 
medical record? Yeah, NextGen is our ambulatory uh, EHR, essentially. One of those uh, plethora of systems we have in supporting our clinical record, NextGen is what we use in the ambulatory site. At our, at currently in use at our at the three freestanding FQHCs and at the primary care clinics within Highland, and this is rolling out to the specialty clinics. Are, uh, is NextGen at the uh, clinics able to achieve meaningful use now? It is. We, we are achieving meaningful use at our freestanding centers, and we have um, physicians that have attested to meaningful use one, uh, none that have attested to meaningful to use two yet, although we're still wor we're working with Lumetra, who's a a um, federally funded program to encourage physicians to participate in meaningful use. Uh, so we pay them zero dollars, but they're helping us to move physicians along into meaningful use and, and achieve that. Okay. And so, and, and then also evaluating portfolio management reports, which include those things like the PACS consolidation that I talked about. Um, th there's three things that we really, the patient education is another one where you have multiple patient education systems that we're paying for that we can consolidate and save some money if we consolidate it onto a single patient education system. And then working through this list of sunset systems to determine if, if any of those 21 applications can be eliminated uh, and reduce our overall cost. If, if the function can be performed in other ways or if the function is really not adding value to the system. And so that's what they've really identified in this, in this list of short-term recommendations. Still a lot of things, and in, in, again, in the departmental focus reports, a lot of other activity that needs to be happened, but these are the ones that came out of the uh, portfolio management review. And so when the intermediate said they, want, they wanted to add this rationale that uh, the scope of implementation should not become a de facto shadow enterprise implementation. As it, for an example, Meditech should not be upgraded and rolled out to multiple facilities. Uh, we are doing Meditech upgrades to stay current with what the system needs to be, but we're not looking at expanding the use of that system greater than what it could be. Now, they are suggesting that we might uh, implement starting clinicals across HS again would be a de facto standard for what we would want to do, and so it's not a, not a direction we want to go in looking at what would become if you're making a decision like this, you're saying this is going to be our long-term strategy because of the investment and resources required to do it. Mm -hmm. um, they, are, they are looking at recommendations should address key clinical revenue cycle needs, so looking at an enterprise master patient index, one way to identify a, a patient across the institution, all of our institutions. Today, the EDI system can do that through the ED because of sophisticated... What system? Sorry, I missed that. The, the EDI system, system, the EDI, ED, 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 uh, ED, information ED, exchange, ED. which we're using at Highland at San Leandro, mm -hmm. and, and we're building to implement at Alameda. Right. Uh, that's the one that's also used by Sutter facilities at uh, Alta Bates and at Eden and, mm -hmm. and other facilities where if a patient presents the ED, yeah. the system will say, hey, this patient has been, here's where this patient has been over the last year, right. uh, previous admissions and ED admissions recently, here's mm -hmm. what they, they had done and sharing information about that patient. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way, uh, if we create an EMPI or an enterprise master patient index, we could identify that patient across all of our facilities internally. So if they show up at one of our clinics and then show up at the LME ED, we would know who that patient is, know who their primary care physician is, know what their course of action is, know their medications, their recent tests, and, and problem list. But is that a duplication of the EDI system then? Yeah, it, it's different than the EDI system. Okay. Uh, and so the EDI system is meant to look at really external right. encounters of that patient, and, mm -hmm. and really it, it looks at, uh, as one example, we found a patient that was traveling up and down the West Coast visiting EDs. Uh, okay. The patient, I think, I think we sent that. I think the patient had 60 ED visits in the last year, right. uh, all the way from Washington, Oregon, and through California. Right. Uh, yeah, so it was uh, one of those, and that's only those institutions that are using EDI that it showed up on. Right. So for, give me the example of EDI because I'm really 
passionate about how we utilize that in our population health efforts. Are, are we paying to maintain that, or is that being maintained through Sutter? Who, who's, who's owning that particular project? Yeah, so, so we pay a subscription for the Eddy platform to be, a, okay. to be a member of it and to submit our data to that. So we're adding John George data to that, and we're adding Alameda data uh -huh. to it to expand it. And, and then we get the benefit of all the other EDs that are on that system okay. uh, gaining their information. And then we provide information as well. So that counts as one of the many subscription services yes. that you're... Yes, one of the other things we're paying okay. for. Yep. Yep. And, and part of that was the initial part was offset to that. Yeah. yeah. CHCI. Yeah. From uh, CHCI. Yes. yes. That was for the pilot. Uh, yeah. Well, we didn't... Well, I guess we called it a pilot, but it was really the, 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 the implementation at Highland, Highland and San Leandro. Yes, okay. it was a pilot in the sense that we didn't put it everywhere, but now we're planning to come it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so then we also address those those key clinical needs at, at looking at that. So the Enterprise Patient Master Index gives, does give us that that visibility to know this patient has been at other facilities. Today, if a patient shows up in the Highland ED. We do not know any information about that patient's visit to Alameda Hospital, San Leandro Hospital. Mm -hmm. If they've been to our freestanding clinics, that's all part of Sorian and we would know that patient. But from San Leandro and Alameda, we're, we're blind to that. Equally, if a patient shows up at Alameda or San Leandro, we don't have information about what's happened at our clinics or at Highland mm -hmm. or John George or Fairmont, any of them. And so that's part of the benefit of this. And, we, and so one of their recommendations is to look at what could we do on an interim basis to improve that interoperability right within our own system to do that. And that's on our list there. Uh, and then again, looking at investments that in part accelerate the funding of the long-term strategy. So that's, uh, we'll see one as we come up here, and I'll, and I'll talk about that. Uh, and, it, and it's in this first one. Can consolidate acute registration and billing across AHS using Soaring Financials platform. So this is one that uh, looks at could we implement Soaring Financials at both San Leandro and Alameda to get us that enterprise master patient index, centralize our business office, have a single billing system, because today, um, Highland, John George, Fairmont, and our clinics all use the Soaring Financial System for patient accounting. San Leandro uses the Meditech System for patient accounting, which is run by employees in our, in our centralized business office at Fairmont, but yet still using the Meditech System. And then Alameda Hospital uses the Meditech System, but that's outsourced to a, a firm that does our patient accounting for us. Mm -hmm. So three separate patient accounting systems um, running three different MPIs to support all that. So this is looking at... Uh, if we did that today, the MPI cleanup is something that we will have to do as part of the long-term plan anyway. So work, doing that work today can help us, one, identify our patients across the continuum and clean up our, our medical records duplications across our facilities. So that's one, this is one of the suggestions that is, as an intermediate-term recommendation, it's going to take a little bit longer than 12 months to do that, but it, get, it still puts us on the right path of where we want to go to do that. Uh, and then the last one there, implementing interoperability, looks at how can we do that data sharing across that, leveraging some of the tools we already have or looking at other tools which might be um, an add-on that would not conflict with what would happen with the longer-term EHR strategy. Uh, that one's a little more difficult because uh, each of the vendors we looked at, uh, both Cerner and Epic, have a, have a, a, a data sharing process, and so... I think that one's a little more difficult to say that uh, estimated cost of, you know, $2 million is worthwhile to spend on, on that initiative as an intermediate step. Uh, it is possible that could be our long-term platform, but we're evaluating that one more deeply and, and having much more discussions with Lighthouse about that. So that's what's in the intermediate 
uh, goals or, or recommendations. In this one, really looking at our long-term key assumptions that, that really our overall objective needs to be to move to this single single platform strategy, uh, that integrated record across the continuum of care, supporting our population health management. Um, that, that the quantity and scope of the short and intermediate term projects can't interfere with that long-term project. So we need to look at those carefully to make sure we're not spending too many resources on that that impact our ability to look at the long-term plan. And then this third bullet, once a vendor choice is made, uh, that we really put all other projects on hold uh, so they don't interfere with that long-term projects. Uh, one of the things Kaiser did when they went forward with their EPIC implementation was said that every other project will be evaluated against how it does it impact or support the EPIC implementation. Mm -hmm. Uh, because so it the was the project they were doing. Okay. Yeah, so every project related. So this regulatory requirements obviously support a prime. We, we will continue to need to do those while we move forward with our long-term strategy and other regulations that come up. Changes to the ACA will impact um, how our systems are used and what we may need to implement. And that in doing all of this, our IT governance of project management and portfolio project prioritization has to be used to make sure we're monitoring and maintaining those uh, to really get buy-in from the whole organization on what the resource requirements of this will be and the time and attention it will take from everyone to accomplish this. Um, so clearly they're saying vendor selection process should move forward, support the long-term strategy. Uh, the Sorian platform uh, will not be capable of meeting that. That was that assessment we did to say could Sorian clinicals and Sorian financials be our long-term solution. Um, and they're saying that, that the Sorian platform will not be able to do that. And that uh, the vendor selection could, could go through and do these steps. We, we obviously need to come up with this total cost of ownership, which will require much more discussions with the individual vendors we're talking to, to understand much more deeply all of the applications that will be involved, all of the resource requirements to implement that, and what that will take. Uh, and so moving forward with that. And then also just educating us through the vendor selection process uh, and all of our key stakeholders on what are the leading practices, what are the out there available in the industry, and what will help us move our business forward. The Sorian won't be able to do it. Um, inclusion, does that include Sorian financials? Uh, no, it doesn't. That, this is specifically around Sorian clinicals. Okay. Uh, and so we're still evaluating that. What is the long-term viability of Sorian financials as a system that could be our EMPI and handle our all of our financial needs? Uh, there's a piece of that that we think that the that intermediate strategy of rolling out Sorian financials to San Leon and Alameda, we're, we're currently in the evaluation stage of that, but we think that could be a, a good intermediate that helps us um, re reduce our overall spend on what we're doing for patient financial services from an application standpoint, consolidating that work into a single business office, uh, eliminating complexities, making it simpler for the patient that has bills from multiple facilities uh, to streamline that activity, and will potentially reduce our overall cost of what we would need to spend on our long-term solution. So lots, lots of variables that go into that decision process that we're continuing to work on. But that's not unusual to see out there in the marketplace right now that the financials are being run separately from the clinical mm -hmm. systems. Yeah, there, there's examples of where that uh, that happens. That there's, there's locations where Cerner um, locations are running Epic Financials, where Epic locations are running Cerner Financials, where uh, Meditech institutions are running Cerner Financials. It's It's a broad spectrum of, of how financials and clinicals are working together. There, there are many locations where it's Cerner, Cerner, and Epic, Epic, so it's yeah, not exclusively yeah. that way. Well, we could continue to use Cerner, just not the Sorian. Well, well this, yeah, clinical. Cerner, Sorian Financial. It's Sorian Financials is that is the name of that that we currently use. Which means, so, yeah, we, we currently use okay. Sorian Clinical and Financial. Okay. But yeah, Cerner is owned by Cerner now, so if you mean right. Cerner could be 
not Cerner's Saurian product, but Cerner's yeah. Millennium product right. could be an option. Good point. Right, yes. But in the lowest performing products, that showed up as like other than the mm-hmm. non-finance. Right, that's the soaring. That's soaring clinicals. Soaring. That's soaring clinicals. Soaring, yeah. So yeah. that's the the non-financial soaring components right. were found to be deficient. Yeah, and that's a user satisfaction rating, which really drove that down. Is our, our end users are not very happy with soaring. Many challenges. So, long-term recommendations, obviously, do do the RFP process, um, get that achieved by August of 2017, um, determined, and that process will determine the actual striping of how we will replace applications as we go forward. Many of those are of the clinical applications or component of that of that clinical system. So laboratory, radiology, pharmacy are, are tied very deeply with the clinical application. And so that's how we would determine what's the roadmap for those applications looking specifically because there are cases where where Cerner or Epic doesn't have all of the applications uh, that, that we would need. And so sometimes that means that we would have to have a different third-party application to support that specific need within those where they don't have product to fill every single niche. Uh, PAX being one of those, right? PAX is a system that neither vendor offers that we would need to have a different product. Blood bank, since I think a lot of them don't have a blood bank application. Epic does not have a blood bank system, so Epic would require a different blood bank. The Cerner product does include a blood bank model. So that's an example where Epic doesn't have one, Cerner does. There's others where it's the other way. Before you put, I haven't seen anything on security. Um, And not to use a word that stirs up all kinds of things, but Hacking is a huge, scary thing for healthcare environments on many levels. Where, where is that? In yeah, so so you saw it back in the governance. There was a security yeah. confidentiality or security and compliance uh, right. work group on that. And so right. every year we do a security risk analysis assessment mm-hmm. where, we, where we have an outside firm come in and look specifically at our systems and what's, yeah. how well are we meeting the HIPAA requirements that are required under a meaningful yeah. use audit. We also do external penetration testing, mm-hmm. where we have external people kind of uh, white hat hacking on us. Your friendly right. hackers come in and see what they can do. Right. And we'll have that report, I think, at the next compliance committee meeting. But is, are we relying, I guess my question is, are we relying on each of the vendors that we use, in essence, to bring to you a product that's already as safe as they know how to make it? Or do we have something on top of each of those it's both of that. Okay. We do require vendors as part of being a certified system. They have to be. They have to meet HIPAA requirements on how data is stored, encrypted at rest, and encrypted in transport, uh, managing access to that data. How they do that. We get reports from our hosted vendors on how well are they meeting those. There, there's a a form, a specific audit form that you can request and get to see did they pass their audit on security and confidentiality of their data. And then we also build on top of our own, our firewalls, our protection and security into our system. So maybe for another meeting, but I, I personally think that if, if you have a breach or if somebody does you know, end up being able to steal records, it, it really hurts the credibility of the, company, the organization, it hurts the persons involved. For another day, I'd really like to hear where we are, what penetration tests we've done. Sure. Um, how many instances there's been of someone who's actually penetrated and gotten a patient data or some data. And then just kind of a broad overview. Um, I went to a site the other day, and I was not allowed to plug my computer into uh, their 
projector. Because uh, their projector, I guess, was connected. Anyway, in, and it's like those policies are getting really uh, very, very stern. No USBs, no external mm -hmm. product. It, it starts to become difficult for the patients who are here overnight to use their own, yeah. you know, laptop or something like that. But I, I do want to hear some, in, maybe for another study session, what yeah, do I, we do? I can very briefly, in, in less than a minute, talk about, a little bit about yeah. how we do that. So we provide a guest wireless access to our patients and visitors that is completely separate from our network. It's completely isolated. It's in its own little tunnel. Right. Uh, you can't get to our network from that tunnel. So if you're on our guest wireless, you, you can't get to any of our other systems unless you go out to the internet and come back in through our secure firewalls and all that. There's no direct path mm -hmm. through there. Mm -hmm. So that's one way in which we do that. Mm -hmm. for, for those that are um, like myself with my laptop, we have a, a BYOD, bring your own device network that we put available that has other restrictions on it that allows me in because I'm part of a trusted system, mm -hmm. right? I've got an active directory account, so I've got a username and log into the system. So it lets me inside the firewall, but not completely inside the firewall because I'm, it's my device. Mm -hmm. And my device doesn't necessarily have all the protection and security. Yeah. I could be doing other stuff with it. Yeah. You know, I, I download some type of malware or something at home because I'm clicking, clicking on some you know, Yahoo email <laughs> message I get that, that downloads some virus to my PC. The BYOD network protects us from that activity because we're not actually on the network. So one of the things that happens is um, is uh, ransomware. I'm sure you've heard of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we've been infected at least four times by mm -hmm. ransomware. Uh, we have never paid a ransom. Uh, what we've done is we have adequate backups in place uh, so that what we do is restore to the point before that ransomware was applied. Uh, and data is lost. But it's one of those where uh, it, it has not been on any mission-critical mm -hmm. applications yet, not like the hospital in L.A. that lost yeah. their access mm -hmm. to their patient records. Uh, it's and not been that. We did have uh, one person that had data on their PC that was compromised and got ransomware on it, and we said, uh, we're sorry, you, you lose that, because it was not on our backup systems. It was not being backed up by us. So, so those, those have occurred. I can also say, in my three years here, we have no, had no identified hacking breaches of patient information. Now, let me be clear. No identified known breaches of information doesn't mean that there's not been a misdirected fax where information went somewhere else or that someone that had a username or password given to them or was stolen from them used to access our systems because if someone has a key to your house, you don't know that someone's broken into your house, right, because they had a key. And so those are ones that are undetectable through normal process of reviewing that. What we can do is monitor those that are people that don't have a key and make sure they don't get in, and that's, that's our penetration right. testing. Um, just, just as an aside, uh, the National Association of Corporate Directors um, listed, uh, you know, cybersecurity as one of the most important thing for governance. Um, and uh, you know, one of the stories I heard on a presentation was uh, somebody got through a firewall because they went to like a Chinese restaurant to order food, and somehow they figured out passwords by the way they were accessing that menu. So they w they came in that way. So the amazing creativity of people yeah. who want to get through to your firewall is just amazing. It, it is a game of cat and mouse. It, it is. Right? There's, it is. there's no the doubt. mice that are the, the hackers and the, yeah. the cat that is the firewall people, the blockers, the protection and, and virus scanner people. And, and I think it's important for us to be very um, uh, consistent about looking at those 
uh, as a board so that we manage that very carefully. Because it's our integrity, mm -hmm. obviously, the security of our uh, patients, but I, I think it damages our mm -hmm. uh, position in the community. So the, the Audit and Compliance Committee is receiving a report on the penetration review at its next meeting, and the Audit and Compliance Committee does you know, routinely look at uh, HIPAA compliance and security as part of its regular agenda. So, uh, you know, both in terms of you know, accidents which have occurred and, you know, to the extent that it might be something that's actually intentional. I don't think there's anything on that one that I need to, um, to talk about there. I, I did want to briefly touch on the timeline, and I know this is difficult to see on the slides. Um, just note that this is this is looking at the short-term, intermediate, and long-term, and, and where they might fall on a time frame. Uh, really, the long-term is starting the RFP process while we you see none of the short-term or intermediates go very far out uh, because they're meant to be, by nature of how they were defined, a short-term recommendation and a short-term work. Uh, and then long-term looking at getting the RFP out uh, fairly soon uh, as we move forward that project, having a selection process done, uh, contract in place by the end of the year, uh, starting implementation at the beginning of 2018, uh, and then being live by 2000, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Uh, that's, that's the general time frame we're looking at. I don't remember whether we're planning to have the long-term care facilities on the same yeah, it, it is intended to be uh, an, an entire continuum of care, including um, OB to yeah, inpatient, yeah. ambulatory, acute, rehab, mental health, uh, long-term care as well, all, all of post-acute. Yeah, any clinical setting we would have would be using the system. That's the extent of my report. There is some supplemental material for you that I included on, on the governance specifically. Um, but thank you for your time on uh, and allowing me to share this large body of work with you uh, and what we're working on and still more to come. Uh, we'll be coming back, I think, uh, later uh, with more information around the RFP process, what that looks like, uh, financial requirements. I'm sure you want to know about that. We're, we'll continue to work on those to, to look at this, what the whole thing will cost us. Who will be putting the RFP together? Lidos uh, is a component of it. We also have met with uh, Foley Lardner and selected them as a partner to work with us on the RFP process to, to help get us into the contracting phase. So we're bringing legal in at the beginning of the RFP process to, to make sure that the RFP includes everything we'll need from a contracting perspective. Other, other questions? Uh, one thing I would love to know um, along the way is how this integrated system will help with, with patient care as far as uh, population health, for example. You know, we're supposed to be looking at the whole patient. Mm -hmm. And I, I imagine this is going to make it possible to do that across the system and across their life. And I'm, I'm always curious how it's going to help our providers to, to offer better care and, and, and our um, preventive uh, efforts. And so I don't know how you quantify that oh, or, uh, yeah, yeah. Very, we we have quantified that so okay. part of the part of the entire process includes population health management which identifies you know the all of the people that are in that pyramid if you remember a pyramid of mm -hmm. health right the people at the top are the most acute most yes. needing most services those at the bottom need the least that the healthy people right so I'm sure you're getting reminders from your physician saying make sure you get all your screenings here's mm -hmm. your in the mail you get your little you know te colorectal test that get done 
those types of things, the system needs to support that. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's a component of our RFP process. I didn't mention that one, right? Well, because... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets that test, Joe. That's why it's, a, that's why it's common knowledge for that one. Uh, and, and so that is a component of us. The, the way it helps our providers is that uh, anywhere in the system where that patient presents, those reminders come up. Uh, you're in to skip, get an x-ray and they say, I see you haven't had your flu shot yet. Would you like to get it today? Right. Those type of activities can happen anywhere a patient presents in the system because it's always push, putting that in front of the providers and, and the people that are, that are touching that patient to get those things done. Notice um, for learning systems, it says pursue if cost benefit is justified. Is that an LMS to manage like workshops or videos or? No, this specific one is our patient education. Oh, uh, oh so, so we have both Crames and Exit Care. Both oh. of them are patient education materials that are that are used in different places that uh -huh. we're paying for both of them. And that consolidation would be: can we save money if we consolidate to just one of those? Do we Next, have? NextGen has a huge library already built in. Yeah. Do, do we have a learning management system to distribute workshop material internally yeah. then? Okay. Uh, yeah. A standalone separate system standalone. called uh, Elsevier is what we use oh, as our okay. learning management system. Yep. So it's, it's yeah. a separate system that we pay for and support yep. to keep track of all that that's not integrated with our human resources system. Oh. So again, that's another piece as, as we look at human resources. Uh, how do we consolidate all of that into a single system the same way you're looking at the EHR from a clinical perspective? Can we use the Lawson platform and consolidate all of that down to a single? Uh, Lawson calls it global HR. Right. And that would be consolidating all of those things around our, our staff and personnel into one system to know who's got their so, license due, have they had their education, right. have I they passed all their competencies. Yeah, I think that's really important. We, I know that we need to manage our budget very carefully and to always be thinking about what we're doing for the patients, but if we aren't taking care of our own to make sure that everybody's up to date on certifications or learning new ways of working with patients, diverse patients, all of that, we're not going to have the outcomes at the end anyway. So we should have a healthy balance there. Spending. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. All righty. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank Bruce, you're up. <laughs> we don't expect it to be as long a presentation. Excellent, thank you. So I, I've got uh, about 72 slides that I want to <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> I promise to do this quickly. Five seconds so, per slide. So I will. Uh, so what, what we're going to be talking about today, and, and just really following up on a conversation that's been ongoing for the last year or, or more, uh, and it's regarding the relocation of our San Leandro, of our Fairmont Acute Care Rehab uh, Facility over to San Leandro. Uh, so I've put some slides together for for you all here to to discuss and just share with you some of the background, uh, some the overview of the project itself some of the next steps of what we want to do moving forward and how you guys will assist us in, in continuing to move this project forward. And then I've got some additional supplemental slides that, uh, that uh, just give you a sense of what the project looks like and a time frame uh, as well as the performa. So when, I, uh, when we look at that, just to give you some background, uh, Fairmont Hospital is our, our oldest facility. Uh, we can say that now that the ACT is, uh, is in place. But, uh, so Fairmont uh, has been around for, for a long, long time, and uh, 
it was built pre-Silmar. So what that means is that it didn't uh, comply with any of the seismic uh, building requirements. So it needs to be retrofitted or it has to be closed by 2030. And uh, that's the Alfred Alquist Act, which is Senate Bill 1953 that you guys have all heard about, Oshpot. So what we've decided, and, and, and over the last year or so, there's been tremendous discussion about this, and so we've decided, we've made a decision uh, that uh, we're going to relocate from Fairmont to San Leandro. Uh, this requires us to do a major modification of the current layout. Right now, uh, the spaces in San Leandro are acute, uh, inpatient med surge beds that would have to be retrofitted to meet the needs of what we would need in a rehabilitation, uh, rehab facility. The plan here is once the construction is done, we would be looking at uh, performing some work on the fourth floor, on the third partial third floor, uh, and at the end, we would end up with a beautiful 28-bed acute rehab facility. So the overview, this is just a picture, just to give you a sense. This will make sense that later on in the, in the slides and the pictures, but uh, the way the, the facility is laid out, it's kind of like an L shape. So you've got the main building, which is the, the, the four-story section, and then you've got more of administrative spaces and everything on this lower two-story section. Uh, so that makes that that'll make some sense because part of the scope of work is that coming out of the third floor is a an outdoor rehab uh, garden facility. So that's where that would happen in that connection. So again, the project summary, uh, as I mentioned, we're looking at the existing uh, third and fourth floors, the fourth floor in its entirety. The third floor is uh, approximately half of the floor, uh, which would be impacted and would be uh, intended to support the rehab activities and the acute rehab services. Uh, the other half of the third floor, as a result of the work that's happening in, in that uh, first phase, uh, we have to do some modifications to support the um, acute uh, inpatient med surge uh, requirements. So that's the, the, the scope and the intended uh, services. Uh, what, what, what goes into a rehab facility, we've got some support departments, uh, such again, PTOT, all the rehab services, uh, as well as associated nursing support services. We've got uh, dining rooms and conference rooms, uh, classrooms, and all the different uh, settings where you can support the activities of daily living, which is really the the essence of what an acute rehab facility will do is trying to get our patients and, and, and you know, able to go back to their normal life as close to as possible. Uh, and then, like I mentioned, we have an outdoor space that will, again, provide direct access from the third floor where they can get some fresh air and, and enjoy our beautiful weather. And I think it's really part of the therapy process of moving Is that forward. a roof terrace? Yes, sir. I think it also includes, I mean, it is a continuation of therapy. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. So there's, there's, it, it, it's really all part of the whole therapy process where they can, you know, different elevations and different things that they can kind of work through. Although they can do some of that in, inside as well, but this is really nice for us. To... Is a graduated elevation change, or how are they putting that in? Graduated elevation changes throughout. They have to build up. That roof no, you will be so at the at, uh, after the construction is completed, you will be able to exit directly from the third floor. I, I mean, on that space is going to be kind of a graduated elevation, so that those that are walking out there will just be walking kind of on a graduated. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
So here I'm just sharing with you a graphical rep representation. This is what we in the construction world call a stacking diagram. This pro provides you with an essence of what is on each floor, all the different services and how they all work together, looking at synergies and how you're trying to bring uh, that uh, service uh, in line. So when we look at the project cost, um, we've bro broken it down here for you uh, to... Um, I'm sorry, Louis, yes. can... Is what is actually on level four right now? Is there anything? Nothing. We've shelled this space meeting. We don't use anything. It hasn't been it hasn't been demolished, but there's no activity. There is. There is part of. It's an old nursing unit. It's just it has not been used. It is not occupied, and this is part of. But it has. It has window. I mean, there's. It's, it's a regular, it's a regular yeah. floor. It's a regular floor. Yeah, it's a picture of the hospital, and it's the actual top floor of the main building, right? Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. Right. This is part of the effort to uh, right-size uh, the scale of the operations at San Leandro to support the, the ongoing right. sustainability of it. So, so that used to just be a uh, med surge area, but we've downscaled the number of beds we use to effectively uh, operating on the, the first and second floors. And the center wasn't using that for I was going to ask that. It hasn't been used for, no, for a long time. How many acute beds are in use currently in San Leandro, and how many will be in use after we use 28 of them for this rehab? So that's a really good question. I, I've got that information. I don't have it readily available, so I'd hate to misrepresent mis, uh, the, the numbers, but I will make sure that I provide that to you. Uh, it, it, I, what I can tell you is that, in essence, uh, the current... Uh, beds that we have that are in, that are in operation uh, will will not be reduced as a result of this of this work. Right there, there are no beds that are in use now that are in this footprint. So this effort won't actually change whatever that number is, which we can get. Uh, it won't change that, that number. It'll go up by twenty-eight. It'll go up as rehab beds, not a, right, 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 rehab, right, in use. So I will get you that information as, as it relates to the total number of beds right now. Because again, if, if, if you recall, I had shared with you guys in the in the uh, trustee orientation where we have licensed beds and operational beds. Well, so but we'll, I'll provide you with the, what our operational beds, our our uh, staff beds, uh, pre and post. Does this Something impact in the forty to fifty range? Right, forty five. I think that's right. Sorry, so ahead. converting to the acute rehab beds, does that affect the license number of beds at the facility or not? Or there, we keep the same license number of beds, we, we just them. add these acute rehab beds? There will be a modification to the license. That's what, yeah. There will be a modification where we're taking these currently unoccupied mm -hmm. med search beds and reclassifying them as, as uh, acute rehab beds. Mm -hmm. So the project cost, uh, as we look at uh, the, main, the main components of what uh, bring this to uh, its total, we're looking at the design of approximately 1.9 million, of which 710,000 or so has already been approved. That was the initial approval, which resulted in the current plans that have been put together that were presented to Oshpod. Um, then uh, the delta, and I'll explain the delta here in, in the next couple of slides, are related to an amendment for us to continue to get this uh, completed. Uh, then you've got construction management uh, of 754,000, the actual physical construction itself of approximately 24 million, 
other fees, which include your fixed furniture and equipment and IT and other, other components that are not part of the construction of the contractor, uh, and then our contingencies for a total of about $33 million. Underneath, I just got a, 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 a quick table there of, of what we're projecting as uh, we're using that as our cash flow to kind of guide how we need to manage our capital over the next three years for the life of the project. So that's, um, and again, I, I, I qualify these numbers by, you know, that they may change up or down, hopefully down, as we go through the, through the competitive bid process. But these are budgetary numbers based on estimates provided to us by our uh, architectural firm and a construction firm that we use to help um, uh, an estimator, construction estimator that we use to help us make sure that we're, we're looking at good numbers. Seems like a lot. Um, at $1.2 million a room, I don't know what it, what it, what it costs on average in our industry, <clears throat> excuse me, to build a rehab room. You know, a hotel for five, four seasons is about $300,000, a hotel room. We spent $2.6 million for the 175 rooms and the new acute tower. So to rehab 28 rooms at a million one to a room just seems like a lot of money. What was the amount that you quoted for the acute rehab? What do we have, 175 rooms in the acute? Rehab. I just divided 468 million divided by 170 and got 2.6 million for brand new construction, new hospital. Well, what was it? What was the total you used for the? New 170. No, 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 not the room number. The uh, oh, 468 million. 468 of the 668. Uh, yeah. I, so I don't know if this is average. It just seemed like a not lot no. considering we're not doing anything seismic per se. We're just redefining some well, we, walls and. We are doing something seismic. This, this this space is being brought up to code so that it can actually be... So how much of seismic versus how much of to accommodate the 28 rehab rooms and the, and the performance of the rehab function? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming it's actually built into the construction cost itself, but I don't... Say that. We have we have the breakdown of all of the different costs related to the you know the entire scope of the project. It's really not offline with you know the construction. I mean you're looking at and again I have the numbers, but when you're looking at construction, you know it's usually not you know you hear all these numbers thrown out. Usually uh, in healthcare right now it costs you know two million dollars per bed or you know as you're, as you're planning ahead. It's it, it depends. You're looking at usually you're looking at it on a cost per square foot and for Oshpot level one uh, construction. Uh, you, you're looking at usually anywhere between, you know, eight hundred to a thousand dollars a square foot. So it's 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 expensive. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's just not. So somewhere along in here, and I think you've mentioned it, a lot of some of the work is actually going to be for the rest of the hospital, or at least the non-rehab. Rest of the third floor. So there will be no um, actual rehabbing of the first and second floors during this project? Not as part of the scope of work. Okay, but the, on the third floor, there's stuff you need to do that, I forget what the list said, but uh, medical gases, or, I, I don't know, so two or three right. things mm -hmm. that right. needed to be brought up to. Correct. You don't need that same thing for the other two floors because they're already... Okay. Uh, well, no, so so this is, so if I can explain, so what, what, what drives... What drives that is the fact that we're disrupting the space. So uh, yes. because we're disrupting the space, we're having to bring it up to current code. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. That's kind of part of the, the whole requirement when you're dealing with construction. It also brings the complexity of the project up. Because now that we've disrupted the space, we've got to make sure that we meet all the current requirements and the current codes. 
And that, you know, so that's the reason why we, when, we, when we're looking at repurposing and, and modifying half of the third floor, we're then having to go and finish off the third floor because we're going to be impacting some of the utility systems, some of the infrastructure as we're looking at repurposing some of the space. But the, the point that, you, uh, another point that your question raises that's important for you all to uh, appreciate here is, as you said, this building is old and does not meet the seismic requirements beyond 2030. This work will make the, that part of the building uh, compliant and is driven by our need to be out of the current acute rehab space, which won't, um, which doesn't pass compliance beyond 2020. So we need to do this by 2020 to do this. That still means that the first and second floor of this building use mm -hmm. it for acute purposes are not up to code beyond 2030. So there's, there's work that we'll have to do downstream to look at that part of the, uh, uh, the space too if we want to continue to operate acute services in that space. And of course one would wonder if it wouldn't be more cost effective to do some of that. Exactly. I was just I was thinking why you have the place well, torn up. Are we going to have to undo work that we've just done to make the first and second floor? Uh, potentially, I guess there will be some of that, but because it's two different, uh, I mean it's a completely different floor and you're doing you're not, I don't think, there's nothing about what we're doing, as, as I understand this, on those two floors that would not be compliant beyond 2030. So, so when I'm saying the rest of the work, we're talking about the other two floors, not then having to go back and do more work on the third yeah. and fourth floor. So let me, so let me, and just to clarify that, so we're, when, when Delvec is talking about the compliance, where we're looking at, so there's two major components in the seismic compliance requirements. You've got SPC ratings, which is your structural performance uh, conditions, and you've got your NPC, which is your non-structural. What this, as part of this scope of work, we will be addressing all non-structural requirements of the third and fourth floor. So that, so it's all your, all your infrastructure, all your piping, all your plumbing, all your HVAC, all your mm -hmm. IT and telephony, all of that, all this being taken care of and addressed. All the proper bracing and, and seismic requirements and, and uh, the uh, bracing for all that stuff. Mm -hmm. How much of this is the med gases? Because that's... I'm sorry? The med gases. Yes. That, as an expense, how much of that? I, I have that information. I can get that uh, to you. I don't have the, the number off the top of my head. But that's a big part of the, the construction or not? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, again, med, med gases aren't, uh, it's not very expensive. I mean, as far as uh, the infrastructure for that, it's, uh, it's just uh, labor intensive due to the fact that you have to recertify the entire system when you when you access and breach the system. So you've got to test everything back to every single you know to every single zone valve, and so there's a lot of work that goes into doing that uh, that effort. And then equally, part of the other thought process to answer your question, Dr. Rosen, is it's the I mean we're also trying to balance the disruption, right? We we're still running and operating a hospital, so you know we want to make sure that we address these two floors, and then we're currently, in fact, I'm, I'm working on on uh, developing an RFP to bring in a, uh, someone that's going to help us evaluate uh, both San, uh, San Leandro and Alameda to see what options we can consider as far as looking at going beyond 2030, uh, leveraging some of the new uh, amendments that Oshpod provided uh, with the new structural performance rating of 4D. So, uh, what? 4D. So Oshpod came out recently with a new uh, condition, uh, which is uh, Oshpod 4D which allows existing hospitals. So what they, what they realized was that, you know, over the last several years and or many years, um, it's, it's, it's become cost prohibitive for many hospitals to just say, oh, we got to build a whole new facility. So they came up with some very specific uh, criteria and conditions that 
if the facility meets those conditions, you're able to make certain structural uh, improvements that will then allow you to continue to move forward beyond 2030. And so the fact that, that uh, uh, San Leandro uh, is, is, um, is only four stories, so it's, it's not considered a high rise, it gives us and it lends itself to possibly, possibly fitting and meeting that criteria. I don't know if it will, but you know, we, we want to certainly explore that. Alameda, there's other challenges because Alameda, where it's built, uh, the main acute facility is built on, on, uh, on sand, on landfill. So we have, I don't like to say landfill because it sounds ugly, but it's just built on sand, you know, and, and so there's new requirements that basically say that there is really no way to, to reach the river rock in that location. It's, it's extremely difficult and, and uh, it, it, at this point, everything, all the information we have is that uh, it doesn't seem like we'll be able to rebuild in that same location. But again, we're evaluating all of that as well. So I'm sorry, I kind of took off into some different tangents. So again, uh, we're looking at a total cost of 33 million. So uh, now I'll, I'll look to my, my, my partner, Dave, to kind of walk us through some of the Okay, so uh, <clears throat> my job is to explain how we're gonna pay for this. Uh, there's typically two ways you do it. <clears throat> you either operate profitably, generate enough cash as you go to afford it, <clears throat> or you have an access to a um, credit line or a bank of some sort. Um, we have both. Uh, this is our, our draft uh, financial plan. It was sort of reviewed educationally last night by the Finance Committee, and we're going to refine it and <clears throat> bring it back next month for approval. But what we've done is we've taken that uh, $33.2 million, it's on line 14, and spread it out by year, so it uh, covers three fiscal years, a uh, small amount this year, 18 next year, <clears throat> and then 13 the year after that. And then we've put everything else in there that we're aware of that we have to have to do, uh, which totals uh, next year 56 million on line 17, and then said <clears throat> basically how much cash can we generate? And, and given our current what we're anticipating uh, of uh, 979 million of revenue and a six percent EBITDA margin, that's about 59 million. So that's a little short. It's going to be about 16 million short next year, but. <clears throat> as years go by, we're going to be in a positive position. So I think that that's a real realistic plan to say over the life of this project, we can uh, generate the funding necessary for this <clears throat> and do everything else that we need to do. Now, there's a lot of things on that capital list that also haven't been approved yet. So if we get down the road and there's some difficulties, we can kind of put the brakes on other things and still have money to complete this project once we start it. Um, and then we have the, uh, the Centiar Bank, which is the county. Uh, here's the uh, uh, forecast through 2018 on the line of credit. Uh, this is actually, um, yeah, it's about where it is. Okay. So uh, basically the, the difference between the red line and the blue line represents money that we can borrow to, if we need to to uh, complete this project. So based on this, uh, I believe that we have the ability to fund this project. And, and just a point of, of to qualify as well, uh, you know, as Dave mentioned, that that one this this doc, this sheet here does not does not include any of those major projects that we were just talking about. Should we need to do some sort of seismic retrofit out at San Leandro or at Alameda or any of that is not included in this in this plan? Yeah, I 
The yeah, IT is. IT is. Put it on there. We have it's right above that. For the uh, HR, and the IT is there in and we 13. Have a placeholder for the Alameda seismic. They're not saying. Well, but the the Alameda seismic is only for the. Uh, yeah, that's for the kitchen. For the SB90 <coughs> kitchen relocation, not the much larger project that may be necessary. So I just wanted to qualify. Okay, so uh, uh, there's a contract amendment that we need to we need to consider, and uh, our plan is to uh, we wanted to certainly give you a give you the background, give you the information regarding the project, uh, and also uh, just kind of let you know that uh, my plan is to come back later this month uh, in our business meeting, uh, looking for uh, approval for a contract amendment to our editors agreement. As I mentioned, our uh, current uh, agreement, which was um, approved in 2014. Uh, for the design, initial design of an, an Oshpot submittal uh, for this for this project, which was about two seven hundred ten thousand uh, dollars, that was done. We met the deadline. The, the 2014 was a critical date because that's when we had to make sure we submitted our plan to Oshpot so they can approve and we can move forward and continue to operate the facility. We were able to do that. Now, what we're looking at is I'm, I'm finalizing the project. We're looking for a contract amendment. Uh, to address some of the additional design requirements that came back as a result of the Oshpot review. So when you submit plans to Oshpot, they review them, they look at them, they say, oh, hey, you know what, you need this, or hey, this code changed, you need to make this modification. So we got to work through all those uh, changes, and so we're incorporating those into this uh, this plan, this this amendment here to, to make those corrections. Uh, of, of significance, we're looking at, they, they identified that as when we renovate and, and repurpose that third floor and we're splitting it between med surge and acute and rehab we need to look at re re uh, repurposing a couple of rooms to negative pressure spaces uh, to meet the infection control requirements for the number of rooms needed based on the total number of licensed beds and then we're looking at because of the layout we need a secondary nurse station because now you're looking at two separate operations that we're managing so we're working through that uh, and then there's a you know a few other little minor things that came up as a result of the uh, the review, but uh, those were the major ones that we were looking to address relatively easily. Uh, part of the uh, the amendment as well is is uh, the construction administration, which is part of the scope of work for the architects, and it's really to put, to put together the bidding documents. Uh, one of the one of the things that we need to do that was not done initially is we we never really designated this this project as a design build project. So now we need to go ahead and as we're putting the bid documents together for the construction. We're looking at uh, making this a design bid build approach uh, to the construction project. Um, so we're making that happen. Uh, the pre-construction review is part of their scope of what they're looking at. Usually in, in a major project like this, some of these uh, ancillary systems such as fire sprinklers, fire alarms, building automations, they're not really part of the scope. They're designed as you're going through the project. So they're looking at developing those submittals and working with the contractors to do that. You know, the construction administration, again, as I mentioned, is the, uh, again, how they manage throughout the life of the project. They're managing the requests for information. They're managing, you know, the inspections with Oshpot, you know, the you know, and when we complete the project, the project closeout, validating, verifying, and making sure that the project is delivered uh, according to plans and specifications. So as, as I break that down, uh, we're looking at the design for the third floor, 232000 the documents for bidding, 120000 uh, pre-construction survey, the construction administration, which is again that that's throughout the life of the entire project, the architects are there uh, to to respond and to support the, the construction team uh, for a total cost of 1.1 million. So again, as I mentioned, we've approved. Uh, so if you go back to the last chart, it was about 1.8 million what I have for design. 710 was already approved. That was the initial work. 
we're looking for this and I, my plan is to come back to you in later this month to uh, request approval to move forward with this amendment. So uh, could I ask, um, <clears throat> so we've already paid the 710000 Yes, sir. And then the amendment is for more than twice that. And was that amount or what percentage of that amount was, was originally anticipated in the overall budget of the project? Well, it was two different things. So I, they were given a very, very specific scope when they put the plan together. The plan was to, hey, let's go ahead and design what this will look like so we can meet the requirements <coughs> and Oshpot uh, allow us to continue to move forward with executing on this plan. If you look at this, the, the, the bulk of that dollar amount is here in the construction administration, mm -hmm. which we did yeah. not incorporate that, we did not include that in the uh, the initial design uh, RFP because we weren't sure if they were even going to, you know, be part of that process. So that's really where the big dollars come in. If, if you look at the design itself, it's only 232,000 for the remaining work that needs to be done in that in that regard. Uh, the, and do you, I'm sorry. Do you think that additional 232 in design, uh, above, you know? Is that because of uh, greater requirements from Oshpod? Uh, like, hypothetically, if a different uh, firm had bid a hundred thousand more on that original seven ten, um, does this two thirty two plus seven ten make them a higher bidder? Well, they, they would have never known. Again, this is all as a result. This is all as a result of. Additional if I, requirements. If I understand, from yeah. If I okay, understand, that, that's my remember. question. Is like, okay. is this 232 because of what Oshpot sent back? That that is, know, is is normal, or is this, you know, oops, we underestimated how much it was going to really cost? No. This is this all has to do with the changes that were the result of Oshpot and the change in scope because of those those changes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. So, but that's what that is. So we've, and we've, and we've validated all these numbers. We, we, you know, we usually have an estimator that looks at these numbers where we can validate and make sure that we're certainly getting competitive pricing on these. Then yep. I wanted to just share with you, I think in our last, uh, in, in one of our last board meetings, uh, there was questions about kind of how do we manage the, the RFP and the grading criteria and how do we ensure that we're meeting certain things that we're looking at as an organization. And so I, I just attached here for you and you can't really see it and I apologize for that, but We've been working very closely with Myers Nave, uh, which is our legal team that uh, is helping us with some of these major RFPs. Um, and uh, one of the things that, uh, as you can see at the very bottom there, is, is where we're looking at local sourcing. And that's been a, a key focus for us. So we want to make sure that I wanted to share that with you all. We're very pleased to see that. And we're going to manage that very closely. It's interesting. You can read it on the screen here. It's interesting. Oh. <laughs> Good. I can't see anything over there. <laughs> so, uh, so again, as I've mentioned to all, just uh, project next steps. Uh, our uh, our goal is to come back to you later this month to approve this amendment for 1.2 uh, million or so uh, to get that uh, that final uh, the scope ch uh, work uh, changes and the Oshpot approvals to begin the project. Uh, we submitted the RFPs for construction management and. Uh, construction itself uh, and on December 23rd. Those are out currently in the streets and, and uh, we're, we're hoping to receive those back here in the next uh, several weeks. Uh, we will be reviewing those. We'll be applying the, the, the review and grading criteria. 
uh, and then we'll be looking at uh, moving forward with those. Our plan is to have a final approval mosh pod. Um, should we get the approval in January, we will submit all of our plans and have everything approved by Oshpot hopefully by February. Uh, then we'll be looking at uh, in February sometime we should be completed with the review of the construction and construction administration. So then we'll be looking at coming back to, to the board uh, in March for uh, uh, awarding and approving contracts with the construction management firm and the general, con general contractor. Uh, once we award those contracts then our goal is to hopefully uh, if everything progresses accordingly, we should be able to start construction sometime in April and stay on target with our original plan. Uh, some of these supplemental slides, this, that's consistent with this project schedule here. Hopefully you can see it better in your iPad than I can see here. But uh, that you know, essentially speaks to kind of the phasing and how we're looking at going about the work. We should have uh, substantial completion of the project in uh, the fall of 2018. Uh, and then the project closed out in late spring of 2019, which puts us ahead of that time frame. Now, understand, you know, we're, we, we, we do have until December 31st, 2019 to have this done. You know, April, we, you know, we, we give ourselves some time because after the construction is all done, everything is done, then we got to plan a move, right? So, the, the, you know, the review, the licensing, the move, the inspections, everything that happens is a result of that, which well, we did here. So we want to make sure we give ourselves plenty of time to do that. Okay. Here's uh, this was a performa. Uh, again, hopefully you can see it better in your in your uh, slide deck there than, than we can. And I apologize for these little small numbers, but uh, again, it, it basically says that uh, looking at the dollars, looking at the information, it's a, it's a profitable service. It just makes sense, and we want to move forward with it, and we'll continue to grow that service line. And these are just, again, just the color palettes. Uh, this is the design for that exterior area. As you were saying, as you can see, there's, there's some, uh, you know, just activity areas where they can do some of the therapy. Um, this is what the inside, you know, just some computer-generated uh, renderings that, of what the space will look like. This is what a, what a typical uh, patient room will look like uh, according to the current design. And this is what the treatment areas will look like. And that is all I have. I'd be happy to answer any questions here. So the, <coughs> the bid process, you know, the design build, uh, bid build, is it the whole bid and, you know, February through March is like finalizing, is that, is that a very shortened process or is that normal to be doing that? Because in February you do the, you know, the redesign from what the Oshpad review 22 requirements were and then you approve a management firm and bid, all that happens in parallel while you're getting the permits and the design. They also do the bidding documents and RFP and all that as well. So remember, so, the, so a lot of these things are happening in parallel. So as I mentioned, I've got the construction uh, RFP uh, went out. I'm sorry? Is the Myers and Nave. Oops. They they've assessed yeah they assisted us with that entire process that those RFPs went out on December twenty first so that process has started we have communicated as part of that you know that RFP we have communicated that hey we're also anticipating this scope change that yeah. we want you to consider as you're going through your review so so some of that work is happening already so as we're we're going through this process we're looking at getting the approvals for um, for the amendment we can get that you know, those drawings completed get that submitted to Oshpot and returned. 
And so we feel that if we have those done by the end of February, mm -hmm. by the time we receive all the bids, we can go ahead and issue an amendment if necessary to complete mm -hmm. some of that just in case we get anything else from our spot. But then by the end of, uh, by the end of uh, February and early March, we can certainly com complete our review. We've done our assessments. We can come and present you with, uh, with what our plan is and, and what our recommendation for moving forward with those particular firms. And then once we get, if we receive your approval and we move forward with that, then we just begin the process of, of uh, you know, mobilizing and, and uh, issuing the notice to proceed for the contractors. Well, is there any chance is the building lead certified? Can we even do something of that sort? Well, the building currently is not. Uh, again, it's extremely oh, old building. It's an old building. But, but in, in the third and fourth floors, we are certainly implementing and, and, and uh, part of the design process is to ensure that we're we're uh, looking at, at the yeah. Now we we may not be able to uh, achieve a lead certification because it's only a portion of the building, mm -hmm. and the, and the primary infrastructure is not. But we are implementing. I mean, we're you know part of the design is looking at at uh, you know leveraging the windows, daylight, uh, you know a lot of that activity. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you very much. That's great. It's uh, wonderful to see us on, on track and moving forward. Um, before, I think we have, uh, it's almost time to go to closed session. Um, before we do, I just want to take this moment to really uh, honor and thank uh, our outgoing clerk of the board, Susana, uh, for all of her work <laughs> in the back. She's been phenomenal at keeping all of us on, on task and making sure we get our work done. And um, forgive me, is it, is it Viv, Viv, Vanessa? Vanessa, Vanessa I, I'm, you've got big shoes to fill, and, and we're looking forward to seeing you fill them and, and welcome aboard. And with that, I think we should head to closed session. Yes, and so just you know, one change to the <coughs> agenda. The uh, closed session items will be uh, one anticipated litigation matter. Under Government Code Section 549, five, excuse me, 54957.9b, and then a personnel matter under Government Code Section 549, uh, 57.6. Uh, there is no conference with the labor negotiator. That item has been withdrawn. All right. Uh, so we are reconvening after closed session, and Mike, do you have a report out? Yes. The board did meet in closed session. Uh, the board took no action. All right. With that, uh, we are adjourned. Uh, uh, th second that. Okay. Second. All in favor. Aye. Yeah. Aye. 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 Aye.